Hi, my name is Ravina. I'm one of the EMR3s at the University of Cincinnati. I will be talking about an article by Driver et al. called Sedative Dose for RSI and Post-Intubation Hypotension. Is there an association? The clinical question that this article is attempting to look at is does the dose of etomidate or ketamine play a role in post-intubation hypotension? So as EM physicians, we do a lot of RSI and typically our patients tend to be more acutely ill than anywhere else in the hospital. Pre and post intubation hypotension is definitely something that we deal with on a pretty consistent basis. We have medications that we use for induction that we know cause post-intubation hypotension such as propofol and etomidate and midazolam and ketamine. We have data for propofol and midazolam, but we don't have a whole lot of data for etomidate and ketamine. This study is trying to look and see if either of these two medications can cause post-intubation hypotension, and based off their pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics, we have a reason to truly believe that. In addition, they try to take a look and see if the dosing that we use, whether we use the standard reference dosing or half dose, as sometimes we do in critically ill patients, affects their hypotensive status. In terms of the study design, this was an observational study, so not an RCT, but they definitely did look at a prospective registry of close to, oh god, over 20,000 patients. They were able to include closer to 14,000 patients in the study, and their inclusion criteria were basically patients over the age of 14 that required intubation that was facilitated by either etomidate or ketamine. The data they obtained was from a registry called NIR, which is the National Emergency Airway Registry Database. They did exclude patients based off of a couple different categories, including pre-intubation hypotension, which makes sense, the use of possible topical anesthesia instead of our standard induction agents, or missing data points such as the primary outcome, a patient's weight, which would affect how the patient was dosed, or if the etomidate or ketamine dose was either too high or too low for it to be included within the data set. So the primary outcome for the study was post-intubation hypotension, which they defined as a systolic blood pressure of less than 100. Typically, they looked at this 15 minutes post-intubation. Their secondary outcome was post-intubation hypotension that required any sort of treatment, including IV fluids or pressors. Some thoughts that I do have about this is that I know that they're using 100 as a cutoff for post-intubation hypotension. However, this is an absolute cutoff and not necessarily relative, and we definitely know that we have patients sometimes who come in incredibly hypertensive, and even though they might not drop down to below 100, a relative hypotension still may be something that we should have considered. In addition, they ended up doing multivariable modeling to determine if the dose of either etomidate or ketamine was independently associated with either of the two outcomes. In terms of the results, they evaluated about 12,000 patients who were intubated with etomidate and approximately 2,000 patients who were intubated with ketamine. The median doses for etomidate were 0.28 mg per kg, and the median dose for ketamine was 1.33 mg per kg. Both had a absolute odds ratio of greater than 0.95. In the etomidate category, there was pre-intubation hypotension in approximately 14% of the patients, and in the ketamine category, there was pre-intubation hypotension in approximately 33 of the patients. Post-intubation hypotension in etomidate was noted to be approximately 16%, and post-intubation hypotension in the ketamine group was noted to be approximately 29%. Based off the subgroup analyses and the total study analysis, the paper noted that neither etomidate nor ketamine dose was significantly associated with post-intubation hypotension 
or hypotension requiring any sort of intervention, which are the primary and secondary outcomes. As mentioned, the results were similar in all of the subgroup analyses that they performed. I will say that based off these results and based off the fact that the ketamine group had a higher pre-intubation hypotension percentage, there could be thought that ketamine was preferably used in a patient population that had pre-intubation hypotension as EM physicians typically believe that ketamine tends to be a little bit more stable in that population set. So overall, the study concluded that there was no significant association between the weight-based sedative dose and post-intubation hypotension for either etomidate or ketamine. The strengths of this data come from the fact that they had a very broad inclusion criteria and they were using an incredibly large database to evaluate. Unfortunately, the study is limited by the fact that it was an observational study, had limited details available as to why an induction agent was used or why the dose was used in each individual patient population, and therefore does not really give us a chance to look into that any deeper. In addition, there was minimal information that was provided in regards to any of the treatments outside of the induction agent that could have confounded the results. Overall, mechanistically, we should not typically expect ketamine nor etomidate to affect hemodynamics just based off of what we know about its mechanism of action. Therefore, doing this study should not be incredibly surprising since there's no significant scientific data to really back it up. In addition, there are so many reasons for post-intubation hypotension that do not include the induction agent that were definitely not accounted for, which makes it a little bit harder to extrapolate the data. And lastly, as we always know, that hemodynamic optimization should be the pre-intubation priority to avoid post-intubation hypotension. So in an ideal world, if we have optimized the patient, then they should not be hypotensive prior to intubation, and therefore the medication that we use should not really play a huge role. And now to continue the discussions that we're having about airway, I'm going to pass off the mic to one of my colleagues, Dr. Tom Hafner, where he will give us some more details about another paper by Driver that has to do with direct versus video laryngoscopy. Hello, my name is Tom Hafner. I'm one of the third-year emergency medicine residents here at the University of Cincinnati. I'm going to be talking about the recent article, Video versus Direct Laryngoscopy for Tracheal Intubation of Critically Ill Adults by Precker et al. This is also known as the DEVICE trial. It was published in June 2023 in the New England Journal of Medicine. This is one of the largest studies to enter the ongoing debate between use of video versus direct laryngoscopy and has already been covered on a number of emergency medicine and critical care review sites. In this podcast, I'll try to quickly summarize the study and give my own thoughts on the paper and its implications. The author's primary question was whether video or direct laryngoscopy resulted in a greater proportion of successful intubations on first attempt. They also looked at severe complications between the time of induction and two minutes after successful intubation. They defined these severe complications as hypoxemia with oxygen saturation less than 80%, hypotension with systolic blood pressure less than 65 millimeters of mercury, new or increased use of vasopressors, cardiac arrest, or death. Their method, as described by the researchers, was a pragmatic, multicenter, unblinded, randomized, parallel group trial comparing the use of video laryngoscopy with direct laryngoscopy. Their primary analysis was an unadjusted intention-to-treat comparison of the primary outcomes using a chi-score test. Among the seven emergency departments and 10 ICUs participating in the trial, patients undergoing intubation were randomly assigned in a one-to-one ratio to having their first attempt at intubation performed with either a video laryngoscope or a direct laryngoscope. All other aspects of the procedure and method of subsequent intubation attempts were left up to the discretion of the clinician operators. 
Important exclusion criteria included immediate need for intubation precluding randomization and clear indication or contraindication to one method or the other. Operators answered a questionnaire following each intubation, but the majority of the data analyzed was collected by independent research assistants that were present for the intubation and could perform follow-up chart review. The trial ran from March 19th to November 17th, 2022, and was stopped early after a pre-specified interim analysis of the first 1,000 patients showed a significant difference between first attempt intubation success between the two groups. Due to continued enrollment while the interim analysis was being performed, the primary analysis was with a total of 1,417 patients of the 1,947 who were assessed for eligibility. Baseline patient characteristics were similar between groups with a median age of 55 years and about 65% were male. BMI was 26.5 for both groups. The most common indications for intubation were altered mental status at 45.3% and respiratory failure at 30.4%. The majority of intubations, just under 70%, were performed in the emergency department with the remainder occurring in an intensive care unit. Both indication and location was close to equivalent between groups. Learners also performed the majority of the intubations, with 91.5% of operators being either emergency medicine residents or critical care fellows. On average, clinicians performing intubation had a median of 50 prior intubations. In the video laryngoscope group, 600 out of 705 patients, or 85.1%, had first attempt intubation success. Among the direct laryngoscopy group, only 504 out of 712 patients, or 70.8%, had successful first attempt intubation. Stating that one more time, first pass success was 85% in the video group and 71% in the direct group. This was a statistically significant difference with an absolute risk reduction of 14.3%. Looking at their other outcomes, there was no statistically significant difference between severe complications during or immediately following intubation, with each group having just over 20%. Safety outcomes, which included esophageal intubation, injury to teeth, and aspiration were each also similar between the two groups. There were multiple sensitivity analyses performed, accounting for factors such as trial site, missing data, but overall I think that the basic statistics of the study are fairly easy to grasp even without looking at the data in front of you. This was a fairly large study with impressive internal and external validity, at least within emergency departments and ICUs within the United States. There was broad inclusion criteria, although about 25% of patients meeting the study criteria were eventually excluded. The majority, about half of the excluded patients, were due to emergent need for intubation precluding randomization, though another large cohort of patients were excluded as video laryngoscopy was felt to be required, primarily due to difficult anatomy. Interpreting the importance of this study largely comes down to how you view the importance of first-pass success. This is commonly used in similar studies when comparing different modalities involved in intubation, such as bougie-first intubation. While this is an intuitive measure and we would expect it to correlate with how patients end up doing, it is important to remember that this is not directly a patient-oriented outcome. It's interesting that while there is a fairly impressive difference in first-pass success, the researchers did not find any statistical differences among the secondary outcomes. Part of this may be due to the relatively stringent criteria, including a drop in oxygen saturation below 80% and a fall in systolic blood pressure below 65. Most emergency departments and critical care physicians would intervene far before these criteria are met, and in some cases, desaturation or hypotension not meeting these levels could still be expected to have clinical significance. In short, even with this secondary outcome data, it is hard to argue that our patients are not best served by intubation on the first attempt. Another interesting aspect of the study, and one that has led to some of the most interesting discussion, is its findings related to the operator themselves. The study had 387 unique operators with varying degrees of experience, including total number of intubations and prior exposure to video or direct laryngoscopy. At all levels of experience, video laryngoscopy resulted in a higher likelihood of first-pass success, although this difference narrowed as the number of previous intubations increased. For learners with less than 25 previous intubations, the absolute difference in first-pass success was 26.1%. 
but this narrowed to just 5.9% when evaluating operators with more than 100 prior intubations. Branching now into personal opinion, the difference in success among operators with different levels of experience has really important implications, particularly for the academic setting. Certainly, use of video laryngoscope seems to result in increased past success and should be prioritized for airways with anticipated difficulty. However, there remains a role for direct laryngoscopy, whether that is equipment failure, anatomic difficulties, or an occluded camera lens. My view is that with the evidence provided here, early competence with video laryngoscopy should be obtained so that it remains a reliable backup with the highest likelihood of success, but then that training for and practicing direct laryngoscopy in the appropriate clinical setting should be encouraged so that this remains available when the situation calls for it. The use of specialized blades, which allow for performance of direct laryngoscopy, though with a camera screen for quick transition to varied laryngoscopy should a view not be obtained, is likely the ideal way to both maintain skills and provide safe care for patients. Buried within the supplemental material, figure S7 is a heat map which elegantly summarizes the absolute difference between probability of successful intubation on first attempt based on the operator's characteristics. On the x-axis is the operator's total number of prior intubations, and on the y-axis is the proportion of previous intubations performed using a video laryngoscope. The heat map highlights that in the vast majority of possible combinations, first pass success is favored with video. However, for operators who have greater than 100 prior intubations, with less than one-fourth being performed with a video laryngoscope, that is, they are experienced and have primarily used direct laryngoscopy in the past, there is a signal favoring the use of direct laryngoscopy. Taken independently, there was no statistically significant benefit to either method for operators with more than 100 prior intubations or for a proportion of previous video intubations of less than 0.25. However, in both cases, the signal still favors video laryngoscopy. Regardless, the heat map itself provides an interesting signal for experienced providers who strongly prefer direct laryngoscopy and wish to continue using this method of intubation. Additional details from the results of the study include the difference in time to successful first-pass intubation. Figure 1 shows the cumulative incidence of first-pass success based on time, with a split between video and direct laryngoscopy occurring around the 20-second mark and continuing to widen until about 60 seconds, at which point neither method has any meaningful change in incidence. While not a studied outcome of the paper, this would suggest that an intubation attempt lasting longer than 60 seconds has low likelihood of resulting in a successful intubation, and alternative strategies including change of positioning, blade, or operator should be considered. Overall, this is a large study looking at an important clinical question performed in a pragmatic design which closely matches what we see every day in the emergency department. They found that video laryngoscopy resulted in higher incidence of first-pass success for tracheal intubation when compared with direct laryngoscopy. This effect size was greater the fewer previous intubations that had been performed by the operator. While secondary outcomes between the two methods were not statistically significant, if you accept the assumption that first-pass success carries clinical significance, then this is a strong argument in favor of video over direct laryngoscopy. If you made it this far, thank you for listening. Make sure you come back in a month for the next episode of Journal Club with the 30 residents here at UC.